Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Dr. Stephanie Watts. She's a clinician, researcher, and educator specializing in the area of swallowing and voice assessment and treatment at the University of South Florida. Her research interests include esophageal physiology, cough neurophysiology, clinical evaluation of airway protective behaviors, and maximizing patient health outcomes through multidisciplinary care. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. You may know of PatCom Medical as an equipment provider that specializes in fees and video stroboscopy equipment, but they also provide other technologies for esophageal access. PATCOM was built on the foundation of improving patient comfort during procedures that access the pharynx, larynx, and esophagus, and their most recent technology is the PATCOM Introducer, which uses visualization for transnasal navigation into the esophagus for safe placement of catheters and feeding tubes. This device significantly reduces the general risks associated with catheter and NG placements. To find out more, visit www.patcommedical.com. That's www.patcommedical.com. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Dr. Watts. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you on. You're so welcome. I'm happy to be here and talk about one of my favorite subjects. Yay, awesome. So if people don't know who you are, tell them a tiny bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a speech language pathologist and a clinician scientist at the University of South Florida. I'm a professor at USF Health Voice Center and chief of speech there in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. My research interests include multi-phase or multi-process dysphagia, 
and in the evaluation and inclusion of esophageal dysphagia in our assessments. Awesome. All right. So much to talk about today. <laughs> Let me just start with how, where did this passion for this topic stem from? I think I always love to to hear researchers talk about that. Sure. My mentor, you know, has been my fellowship mentor and colleague has always been an advocate for esophageal dysphagia in the work. During the course of my training, I really had an interest of my own formalizing and validating and being a proponent for the accessibility of caring for patients with dysphagia. I myself have esophageal dysphagia, actually. So yeah, uh, my last dilation was last year and I'm due for another. Uh, and so the the interesting part is when you you know actually suffer from difficulty eating and you know have concurrent problems in the throat, uh, you know you have a passion to help others and to help them uh, identify where the problem is and get it solved with a, a group of people who know what they're doing. Yeah, was it the chicken or the egg? Did you have esophageal dysphagia before you wanted to investigate it, or did you have it and then you and then you had it? So my first operation was when I was eleven. Certainly didn't know much about any of this, actually. Okay. And yeah. then, you know, the more I learned, the more I became kind of passionate about disseminating information and, and certainly as a scientist, understanding the pathophysiology. Yeah, awesome. All right. So so where should we start with this topic? I guess there's, there's so much to start with. Well, you know, the original protocol was published in 2019. So it's been a couple of years and then subsequently validated with a group of participants uh, retrospectively. And since its conception, formalization, standardization, I have had the privilege of meeting so many SLPs across the country and the world who are interested in this and say, hey, I face this dilemma at work all the time, you know, that I want to look further. I know that the swallow does not end at the upper esophageal sphincter, but we arbitrarily dichotomize these things, oropharynx and esophagus. And so my passion has grown not only to understanding the physiology, not only understanding concurrent and construct validity of the assessments, but also how we can disseminate how we can make it usable to clinicians who are in the field working hard every day to serve their patients. And so I teamed with a very bright and eager clinician scientist, Jessica Greger, over at Mayo, and formally taught, came up with like a three-hour protocol to teach and formally taught a small group of SLPs the rest. I went into kind of deep into esophageal dysphagia and relationship between the two and why you might need to investigate further, then went into the rest, then provided many examples and did kind of a inter-rater reliability testing. And so when they met a certain kappa threshold reliability, then they instituted this at their institution through quality improvement program. And over the course of several months instituting the rest formally at their institution, we decided to publish it. So you'll see that in um, AJSLP in the next month or so. And it's kind of a how-to guide. And that's just the beginning too, because there's so many questions about now, what do we do? What are the algorithms of care when you find a screen fail? Who do you refer to? What are the limits of our capability as a speech pathologist or a medically trained speech pathologist? Do we know enough to feel comfortable? And so it's grown into this really wonderful program programmatic line of research that I'm happy to be carrying out continuously 
currently, and also recently trained an amazing group of clinician scientists at Tampa General Hospital, all in acute care. So kind of took that model of systematic training, even though their knowledge expanded into obviously esophageal dysphagia, but just so that we were confident that everyone had the same access to training. And they too met an 80% and higher kappa for these reliability intra and inter-reader reliability and have been implementing this program in the acute care. So what does it look like in the outpatient setting? What does this look like in the acute care setting outside of a, you know, really academic focused swallow center where you have, you know, autonomy and all sorts of other things? And so real life data coming in. And then from there as well, we have a new IRB protocol going in, looking at something I'm happy to announce as the MREST, or what is the concurrent validity of a modified version? So if you have a patient with oral pharyngeal dysphagia and you cannot fully complete all the bolus challenges included in the rest, what does that look like? You know, is this still a valid measure? And so that will be at your doorstep soon too. Amazing. So a boring summer for you, Dr. Watts. Love to hear it. Not a boring (laughs) summer. No, (laughs) never is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this stuff is so exciting. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Let's back up a tiny bit only because I think what's so, so fascinating about this is like, this is literally your entire you know, scope of what you study. But for some speech pathologists, we've only learned a tiny, tiny, tiny bit about esophageal dysphagia, or maybe took one, you know, two hour webinar about it. And that's the extent of it, right? So if you can back up just a tiny bit and explain maybe what the rest is for listeners that might not know what that is. You touch on a a good point there is the how we're not systematically trained as a group of providers in an area that our governing body says that it is within our scope. You know, it's within our scope to take a look. We know that these processes are intimately related at a neuro and physiologic level. And so when we provide, you know, that background and say, hey, you can go out there and take a look, but we're not systematically training our providers, there becomes this split in the field of should we look, should we have more training? And then that's the survey that kind of came out recently was how to elucidate how dichotomized we even are in our own profession of should we look, do we need more training? And so the rest was really provided as an addition. So four bolus challenges as an addition to the modified barium swallow study with really concise operational definitions for a pass fail And so the clinician will follow a solid bolus, just completing their oral pharyngeal assessment all the way through to the stomach, making sure it made it to its destination. They'll follow a thicker liquid, so a 70 weight to volume, easy pick liquid from the mouth through the esophagus. The x-ray tech will remain at the lower sphincter and follow a bolus there. And then finally, the tablet that we typically give, the 12.7 millimeter tablet will be followed from the mouth all the way through the esophagus. And based on a set of operational definitions, the clinician will say, was there something like to and fro movement, bolus hang up for greater than a minute? So there's a temporal aspect. Or was there some sort of variation in anatomic configuration from a straight pipe? And based on that, in the preliminary data, we found that clinicians are quite accurate in describing abnormality as compared to our physician raters. Awesome. Cool. What what does the rest stand for? The robust esophageal screening test. All right. The word robust is a funny one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I've been using it a lot lately, so I love to hear it. I don't know. I don't know why. Robust. Well, yeah. you know, it is. It's just more robust 
than yeah, one, than one <laughs> you know one view or just following down to the aortic arc you know it's not too robust but just robust enough in my opinion and we find such value in that those extra views especially the one where you remain at the les i call it the money shot because when you have full distension of the lower esophageal sphincter you can bring out kind of aberrant shapes of the straight esophageal contour and then discuss uh, further Interesting. Yes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I think it's important to note that the rest is a screening protocol. You know, it is not the definitive factor in determining etiology. It is merely to accompany the modified barium swallow study, make sure your bolus got to the destination it was supposed to go to. And also because when a patient comes to you or a physician comes to you with the question of why is this person having trouble swallowing? In my opinion, we should look at the whole process because of certainly the esophagus has influence on the pharynx and the pharynx influence on the esophagus. Yeah, a few questions for you. So is this something that you would do with every single patient, every single every single time you do a modified barium swallow? Indeed, the nature of it is screening when you have a referral for, as an outpatient, when you have a referral for a swallowing problem and someone comes to you and they have a list of complaints and problems, we don't typically know exactly what they might be referring to, right? There could be a variety of complaints and there's no clear etiology of what questions pertain to what, which is also one of our (laughs) investigative aims. We have a lot of fun things coming out. I just had this question presented to me. And so I say that if limited to patient questioning, a globus with eating is a nice indicator in terms of pain and sensations. Some individuals with prolonged distension, pharmacologic etiology of dysphagia and disease are often not sensate to the pain that distal hangup can cause. And taking a look as a screening protocol will help assure that you and your team, your physician and multidisciplinary team will have information to proceed. Okay. So yes, you mentioned it's a screen. So where do we go with this information? So we find out that the patient is, I'm not sure what the parameters parameters are for the rest, but say the patient fails, quote unquote, the screening. What's the next steps? What's the patient's journey at that point? So if the patient fails part of the esophageal screening, then that information is relayed to the referring provider. And this is one of the biggest questions during the implementation science process where we are right now is how do we make a hierarchy of referrals? And I think that that is incumbent upon the underlying issues we have in our profession, which is, is the clinician comfortable enough and trained well enough, truly, and feels, you know, autonomy enough to have that discussion with a provider saying, in this patient, I feel as if this screen fail is contributing to the etiology of their dysphagia. Perhaps next steps could be manometric testing or you know, gold standard visualization, which includes an esophagram, which is a double contrast study in the reverse Trandellenburg precision where you truly can investigate reflux or EGDs. And so the long answer there to the short question is we don't know. So as of now, a, a screen fail is refer, discuss this with your referring provider. Perhaps the outcome is oral pharyngeal dysphagia is not present, right? There's a normal swallow, but I see a clear variation of bolus flow through the esophagus that might be contributing to this patient's problems. Please see the operational definitions and criteria such as bolus hang up for greater than a minute. You know that 
would not clear. A pill hang up for 20 minutes that wouldn't clear, that's excessive. But, you know, and hopefully that provider will take back and get subsequent workup a little quicker. One thing I stress in so far in piloting these implementation series is the construction of a multidisciplinary team. I think a speech pathologist just doesn't work in isolation no matter where you are. In the hospital, we should know and befriend our dietitians, our nurses, our doctors. And so if you're a lead or you are the dysphagia person in your hospital or your setting, I think creating that multidisciplinary team where you can say, hey, I did a swallow study on Mr. Smith, Dr. GI, and I found this, I think it's really important that we investigate a little further and thus kind of speed up the process of evaluation for that patient. Awesome. Yeah, I know we both love and adore Jessica Greger, and I know they do an amazing job with their multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic too. I've had her and also the ENT and GI on that she works with too. And I think that's just so, I think that's something every SLP that works in acute care should strive to have sort of that interdisciplinary team with all hands on deck. So yeah. And well, team science, first of all, I'm a provider and scientist, but can't do any of this without the work of the clinicians who are actually there in different settings, seeing patients. And so we are, you know, we piloted an implementation there with that team. And then both the GI and ENT laryngologist are interested in this next series of projects with me. So I'm really excited about the outcomes of this over the next year as we look into what are the algorithms of care for this? How do we implement this and help our our fellow colleagues in the hospitals and the outpatient settings create algorithms in their institutions? Oh my gosh, you're doing such amazing work, Dr. Watson. Love hearing about all of this. (laughs) Oh, I... uh... I can't do it alone. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it's beautiful. I mean, I think this is just a beautiful unfolding of questions in our field and getting answers from, you know, relying on different professions and, and doing the research and implementing. So this is awesome. Thank you so much for talking about all this. Yeah. Where should we go from here? Well, in regards to the acute care setting, I'm very interested in what we'll find. Traditionally, you know, we have deemed it to be that these patients are in such a situation where we shouldn't be looking any further. They can't undergo more testing or or look below. But I think that due to this delicate interplay between the oropharynx and the esophagus, and we know about the neurologic, physiologic, and anatomic connections, that not only do we see you know, an oropharyngeal manifestation of dysphagia in acute care patients, but also in patients with polyneuropathy, critically ill patients that affect sensory and motor nerves, that we can see esophageal manifestation as well. Patients with multisystem organ failure or systemic inflammatory response syndrome, ICU patients with neurologic etiologies, maybe even prolonged NG tube placement. If we could just expand our thinking that more might be going on and how do we look and can we look? And can we look safely? So I have a really bright and motivated team of colleagues in the acute care setting who are doing just that. So they're implementing and looking at the rest in these acute care patients. And then we're trying to understand what were some barriers to implementation, but not only negatively, what were some facilitators to implementation? You know, were you able to easily access a physician to relay results to? Were the patients critically ill or sick, but could you still perform the screening on them? I think this is valuable, useful, everyday clinical information that helps us 
with implementation science or getting things done, you know, in the community, not just in an isolated kind of academic setting. Yeah, I love talking about this, especially it's very relevant to me right now. I've just started going back to doing PRN at, at acute care and doing modified barium soil studies. And I'm so surprised, you know, I did did fees for so long. That was my home and my love. And I still very much love fees. But, you know, what's so interesting now is that so many patients will come in just you know, outpatients will come in and just say, you know, I, I can't explain it, but I just have trouble swallowing sometimes and we'll do the modified and it's absolutely beautiful and there's nothing wrong. And then we do the esophageal scan at the end and just there's the barium pill just hanging out in the lower esophageal and the LES. And then, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to me now knowing everything that I thought I knew from years and years and years of doing swallow studies to, oh, this is, there's definitely something here that's greatly impacting this person. And you know, I think of what I would have done in the past for this person, you know, I might've just said, Hey, you know, go to GI then if you're not, we don't see anything, but you know, maybe GI is your next answer. But I think just being able to give a patient much more specific data and information about what they're experiencing and help to get them to the next level of care quicker and faster is better for everybody. And yep, certainly expediting care and also kind of validating some complaints in a way, right? Yep. Yep. So I think one of really powerful things that we do as SLPs is our ability to counsel a patient through a situation. And if you look at any of our quality of life questionnaires, a lot point to problems or difficulty you're having that might be physiologic in nature. But some of the questions are also, how do you feel about this? And it can be very devastating to have trouble swallowing and it affects your weight and affects your ability to go out for meals with friends and family. And when you have a swallow study done, which is the gold standard as we like to say, I don't know, but you know, you have this gold standard instrument assessment done and they, you know, everything's fine. It's, this is normal. Or if we take a look and just like you said, you know, I see this pill hanging up for a little bit longer than it should. I'm going to reach out to my MD colleagues and see where we can go next. And they might leave saying, oh, you know, maybe next testing will help me understand what's going on. So you're you're right, you know, the ability to counsel someone through that. Yeah, I, I think where we are now, though, in our field is that so much more needs to be done with this subject. And I know there's a group of us that are interested and so much more needs to be done. And it needs to be done with the help of our governing bodies to make more, in my opinion, more absolute you know, decisions that this is part of our scope to make sure that the bolus has made it to its final destination. And then from there, how do we implement this in our academic systems to teach our students who feel more comfortable to feel comfortable with having this as part of their educational package? And so it involves, of course, our academics, you know, our academics having interest, our academics incorporating this into the dysphagia lectures or, you know, med SLP programs at the graduate level so that when they do graduate and there's time for practice and, and fellowship and further advancing education, like being part of the Med SLP Collective, that this is just building upon a baseline knowledge. Yeah. 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 Thank you for bringing that up. I think this is, ah, I have so many feelings about this clearly, but it's just such an important topic. And I think what, what's interesting is now that I'm working more in the hospital, I feel like it's just, I don't know if it's much more prevalent or, you know, I'm just seeing the right types of patients now, but I feel like it's got to be, you know, one out of every, you know, maybe three or four patients that we do a modified on, you know, is having trouble with this. And it's gotten me thinking a lot more the last few months, you know, is this problem becoming more prevalent for whatever reason, or are we just getting better at, you know, referring patients for modifieds and getting patients the help that they need? So yeah, we've got to keep up with that as a profession too. 
That's an excellent question. And I have to say, I don't know the answer. Esophageal dysphagia, you know, whether motility in nature or structural in etiology, I think we have a lot to look into there. I think we are more interested in looking at the esophagus now and have some protocols available to bring to the team and, and thus finding more. One interesting finding at Mayo this past year was in the head and neck cancer population, just finding so many of them or having this multi-phase, if you will, a multifunction dysphagia. And I thought this number is a little high, you know, it's a little higher than what we find, you know, our colleagues were finding. And so my colleague, you know, had the idea to really look into reflux and dysphagia and, and especially in this head and neck cancer population. So you'll see a really nice paper coming out in the next month on that too. Perhaps it's a, you know, more reflux going on, or perhaps it's our interest in looking and we're finding more because we're looking more, or we're looking with something that's a little bit more, I have to say it, robust. But um, I think it's doing our patients a, a favor, but still needs a lot of work. I like to solve all the world's problems in a day, Dr. Watts. So. Yeah. So I, I'd love to go back and touch on this counseling piece because I think it's so, it's something that we don't, I don't, I don't want to say this wrong. Not, not that we don't do a good job, but not that we're not really trained on. It's just something that isn't a part of what we do all the time. And I think it can be a disservice because I think it's a huge part of what we should be doing. And, and I, you know, it's got, I've gotten just thinking about this a lot more, you know, as I'm seeing outpatients and if we aren't the ones delivering the information or we aren't guiding them to the next level of care, or like you said, I love the term validating them, right? I mean, how many times do we have patients come in that we don't see anything. Or how many times do you go to a doctor with complaints and they just say, oh, you know, sorry, we didn't see anything. Tough luck. Have a good day. And that's sad, right? And I know, you know, I've had some conflicts with some other professionals in our field about this. Like, is it our role to continue to investigate or tell the patient, hey, you know, we didn't capture this today, but there is something funky here. You know, maybe we should explore something else. Or do we just say, oh, we didn't see what we were looking for. Sorry, you're off my plate. And so I love that this leads us into, you know, I, I think we do need a lot more screens in our field because it just sort of gives that lens into, yes, you're not crazy. You are experiencing some sort of sensation. There is there is something going on. We just have to get you to the right professional to identify that and get you the course of treatment that's appropriate for you. But I think being confident enough in having this knowledge and being confident to have these conversations and, and also have the trust of our colleagues to make the appropriate referrals, I think is something that that I'm really passionate about. And, and I wish more SLPs would, would embrace this. Uh, you mentioned two very good points, I think. One that we've touched on already is the confidence in a clinician, a clinician's confidence to want to discuss these things. And this is going to be a long time coming, but I think starting at the academic educational level is really important that we instill in our students the importance of this and give them the knowledge, the physiologic knowledge of how the food pipe functions and that they, they're armed to go into their placements asking the right questions. And that's, you know, kind of a grassroots effort of how we change. As I've said, I think it comes also from our governing bodies and getting, you know, I do believe we have that blessing from our governing body that this is something we should look at, at least in the adult world, but to more focus us so that we can delineate precisely, you know, what we should be doing and how we should be counseling and thus like the education piece so that clinicians feel confident. Now, again, this is much more of a grassroots effort on my part by implementing these series of lectures at these different institutions. And I, and I hope that it, it continues to grow in a more 
logical way, which would be a platform that more people can get a hold of instead of me doing them independently. As of now, it's more of like this grassroots effort and it needs to change institutionally so that we, all of our dysphagia courses, when we have this next generation of dysphagia specialists and scientists, that they already come out with the basic knowledge and confidence. And then the second piece you brought up about counseling, I just uh, had a couple of individuals with Huntington's disease come through this fall this week and their caregivers are complaining and noting, hey, he is choking so much during the day. He is choking, you know, whether it's, you know, limited selection of foods based on, you know, cognitive functioning or not, you know, not just not eating and, and losing weight. It's it's kind of a dire situation. And I do the swallow test. And of course, there's some abnormalities with initiation, but absolutely no aspiration. You know, UES functioning is quite good despite the obvious delay in initiation and you'd think distension of the UES. And so it was a really important moment for me as a provider and clinician to explain to that individual that this is a snapshot in a moment of time three minutes of this person, I can definitely see why he would be choking at home all the time. And just the relief on her face that, you know, oh, he's okay to keep eating. And I said, well, you know, of course, but maybe these things could help prevent the things that you're all suffering with every day, you know, and psychologically too, to have your loved one just choking, choking, choking all day. And if she were to come to the study and I said, well, no aspiration on this, you know, he should be good to go, then that would be terrible. You know, and and I think if we translate that to esophageal dysphagia, and I'm sure a lot of listeners and yourself have screened someone and seen something that's off, right? Whether a large anatomic abnormality or just stasis throughout the, the food pipe up to the level of the clavicle. And we don't need to be esophagologists, but we say there's something wrong here, right? And then we say to that patient, you know, I'm going to get you to the right place, or we have someone to reach out to, to help that person. I think that counseling piece is just essential. I get a lot of questions about, you know, what do I do if I can't do all of the challenges? If I can't do all the challenges and is this still a valid measure? And that's a really great question because we don't have the answer on concurrent validity for a modified version of it coming soon. But but I think if you can, you know, the tech working with you or the doctor working with you can have a a dedicated view at the lower sphincter. I think this is very, very valuable information to complete your modified varium swallow study, screen down to the emptying point and just make sure everything gets through there. I think that's a very important. Any other FAQs you get? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> I can read through some of them. I have them listed. And also in the article coming out, there's an appendix. So this article is more of an implementation guide, like a how-to at your institution. If you want to put a quality improvement project through and get esophageal screening rolling at your institution, how to reach out to a team to create a multidisciplinary network to reach out to for your screen fails, how to implement, and then commonly asked questions and responses that I've had to them you know, over the past few years. And so it's kind of a reference point for, for speech pathologists because a lot of times I feel like SLPs out there may feel kind of alone in this. You know, where do I go? Where, where are the resources? Are there articles I can read and present to, you know, my fellow providers to help 
boost their confidence in me as a clinician, you know? And so this is one method of doing that. I can go over a couple of questions if you like that we've had. And so one of them is really that fluoroscopy as an art, as much as it is a science and clinical skills and training differ amongst clinicians. And I think that's a really good comment from a physician. A good response to that is, you know, Following the video fluoroscopic swallow study or modified, the SLP and radiologist really confer and collaborate the other dysphagia care team members to determine next steps. And really, esophageal screening is not a new practice. It's not meant to replace the esophagram, but rather add to the clinical utility of the swallowing evaluation of the oropharynx. And Presently, you know, standard practice patterns include following a bolus through the esophagus that there's operational definitions to abide by. And so although training and skills differ, there is a protocol to follow with operational definitions to help guide a clinician in the direction that they should go. And so it it is an art, but we have screening protocols in place with pass-fail criteria to help kind of guide just that for that purpose that, you know, it is an art. And so really here you're not following, you're not kind of making up the the trials as you go along, but you're following a, a systematic and standardized protocol. So in, in regards to reporting results from the rest, you can certainly template pass and fail criteria and just simply follow the pass fail definitions in reporting. And then hopefully at that time, you're conferring with the radiologist and the physician about the results and their you know documentation will reflect just that. And then that gets sent forward to the referring provider. Yeah, I think, I think that's a huge thing. So I'm so glad you brought that up. I think so many people wonder how, what is our role or what is within our scope of practice to say about this? And I think right now we just say the barium tablet did not pass through the LES within a specific amount of time and and then send on the referral from there. But I'm curious if you think, you know, there should be more added to that or yeah, what what is our role in and how much we elaborate, I guess. You know, that is a good question in the recent paper that just came out on survey practice patterns. I think I published the ugliest table I've ever made in my entire life, but I <laughs> I did it on purpose. Uh, so when okay. you see that survey paper and you're like, wow, Steph, this is a really ugly table. It was done on purpose because my PhD mentors were very meticulous about beautiful tables. So there are over 300 terms that SLPs are like using, you know, to describe aberrant movement, I suppose. And I think that's too much. Let's, uh, you know. Yeah. It's like, I'm visualizing one of those like word scramble things, like where you, word cloud, I think is what you call it, where you include all the words. Yeah. That would have been prettier. <laughs> I just made a table with like all the things to drive home a point. Yeah. You know, when, when I ask what are terms that you use to describe, you know, and then they, they just, there's so many. And I'm like, no, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, I think that, again, it comes back to, comes one, back to the governing bodies, you know, yes, we should be looking and here's how we should be looking. And here's the things that we should be comfortable saying. But two, you know, as part of our standards of training at the academic level, this is the knowledge that is given to our students and thus practiced in the world. But I feel comfortable with reporting a failed screening directly using terminology from the protocol. You know, deviation of straight contour, you know, disordered wave propagation to and fro movement, and then temporal aspects. This stayed longer than a minute. 
despite having a sip of water, you know, and those are kind of straightforward. I don't feel and nor, you know, do the physicians that I've worked with um, feel that that's really outside the construct of an SLP's ability to describe. And I think we also have to remember that the SLP has to understand the oropharynx, which is much, much more complex than the esophagus, both from a neuroanatomic, you know, innervation standpoint and a movement standpoint. Uh, so if we can have, you know, autonomy over describing movements of the oropharynx, I think that, you know, describing that a bolus has hung up longer than a minute is okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for saying that. I think that, that'll be valuable to a lot of people. So. Um, yeah, this has been awesome, Dr. Watts. Is there anything else we didn't cover or any, any final thoughts? You know, I've recently built a practice over the past two years under the direction of uh, Dr. Yael Ben-Susan. She's a laryngologist and my new partner, Dr. Yasmin Abdelladi, both laryngologist, fellowship trained, both just advocate, advocates for the SLP and for what we do and, and our role in providing care. And during the course of the, you know, constructing this practice, and then with the addition of Dr. Abdelladi, who's leading the dysphagia team, we've been able to navigate the complexities that I think are felt in the community, trying to build something, trying to implement a screening, relay this to team members that, hey, hey, radiologists, we're doing this. And, you know, I I did come from a place where there was a lot of autonomy doing that. And having to reach out there, just like our colleagues are in building teams and presenting this has really given me a whole new insight and a whole new appreciation for what our SLPs in the community do and are doing every day. And so I hope that this future systematic line of work over the next 10 years leads to practice algorithms, understanding implementation science of how we get this done, leading to change at our not only academic institutional levels, but our providing governing body levels, and then further understanding of the pathophysiology between the two sites of dysphagia, if you will, you know, terminology with multiphase and everything. I'm not, I'm not really sure I care what we call it in the end, but those two things, they work together. Yes. Um, so yeah. I will call it whatever we want, yeah. as long as we agree on that. And I think over the next 10 years, I'm just very excited to move this body of work forward. You know, even just understanding if the questions we're asking patients lead us in the right direction, if the way we counsel patients can be expanded upon so that we can get them to the right place and get them help. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing episode, an amazing interview. I I feel like this is going to be a fan favorite. So thank you so much. I know this is questions that SLPs everywhere have been asking. So thank you for providing some answers and some context and also for all of the work that's going to be published soon. I know, you know, people will be so excited to dive into that. So I can't thank you enough, Dr. Watts. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. 
Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week.